Welcome to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge, the fiercely nonpartisan discussion that seeks policy solutions to issues of the day. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. And welcome to The Common Bridge. This is part one of a two-part interview that Rich had with author Thomas Frank. It ran a little long, so we're going to run part one now and part two next week at our normal drop time. So we join their conversation in progress. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to The Common Bridge. Happy that you've joined us today. We've got a great guest, Thomas Frank. You're going to hear a terrific story from someone with a really long view on some of the political machinations and the history of the country and where we stand today. We're going to talk about the history of populism, some historical parallels, the state of the two major political parties today. Probably touch a little bit on how the reporting industry world is processing all this. And frankly, where does the average citizen fit in? You know, all of us just trying to lead a decent life. Tom is a renowned author. He's a commentator, a columnist, historian and an analyst. We're going to talk a lot about his professional background and some of the recent writings he's had. But first, let's say hello, Tom. Welcome to The Common Bridge. Rich, it's great to be here. Our audience likes to know a little bit about the guests. So maybe tell us a little bit about where were your early days and some of your academic prep, a little bit on your professional work. and Sure thing. So I'm born and raised in Kansas City, but on the uh, Kansas City is in both Missouri and Kansas. I bet I bet some of your listeners know that. And I'm from the mm-hmm. Kansas side. I'm from Johnson County, Kansas. And uh, so I grew up there, went to the public schools and um, went through life, did all the things that you do. Went to college. I went to graduate school, uh, studied history, meant to become a historian. Uh, this was, a, you know, and I got a PhD in the early 90s. And um, the sort of job market for the humanities was just in a state of collapse at the time. And it's only gotten worse since then. And uh, and so the, the joke is that I always say I went into journalism for the money because because <laughs> 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 it, it, it paid more than doing what we call adjunct work, you know, which is what I was doing. I ran a magazine that I started called The Baffler Magazine. It was a sort of a literary journal of social commentary. And uh, this was in, in my Chicago days. I lived in Chicago, Illinois, which turns out to be a wonderful place from which to view the world. And uh, your, your bridge motif. So one of my friends when I lived in Chicago was a guy called Studs Terkel, a great oh, man, sure. one of the, one of the yes. you know, truly great Americans. And uh, his first book was called Division Street America. And the picture on the cover was of a bridge over the Chicago River on Division Street. I think they've since renamed the bridge Four Studs. But uh, I always think of that because that was his motif as well. Yeah, there's some great newspaper people in Chicago, Mike Royko, Studs, Turkel. Mike Royko, there was a, I never met him, but I, I was a big admirer of his. There's a great man. Yeah, there's some some uh, good Cass, I believe it is, that's writing today, or Kastner. Yeah, I don't live there anymore. Now, I live in Bethesda, Maryland these days, and uh, so I'm, I'm not in Chicago any longer. And um, yeah, and I've written a whole bunch of books, uh, a lot of them about politics, and to the point where I'm really 
sick of it. <laughs> but you know what? There's all, one of the great things. So I'm here, I'm in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. So there's the thing about politics is that there's this endless uh, bubbling cauldron of you know, ridiculous stuff going on that you can write about. And that's sort of I, one of the reasons journalists, there's a lot of reasons why journalists are drawn to it, but that's one of them. And uh, I always say, you know, I've, I've got to give, give up on this and go back to doing what I used to do, which is writing about art and culture and things like that. And, uh, but it's, it, it's so, uh, politics is just so fascinating. And uh, so I'm here in the suburban DC now and politics is all anybody talks about in this town. Um, and we'll, we'll get into that later, but like, uh, just one last point, everybody, everybody I know in this city, except me has met Joe Biden. <laughs> uh, well, he's been there a long time. So that, that kind of, exactly, exactly. He's, he's yeah. touched, touched a lot of people and we are going to get into that. And part of it is that the reporting industry, I, I refuse to call it you know, reporters or journalism anymore, but the businesses that churn out things, they want to talk about the inside game. And what we do on the Common Bridge is we try to talk about policy. We try to talk about what's real. Uh, does it matter if there's a filibuster or not a filibuster? Hey, where's the healthcare bill? What are we doing about uh, the border? What are we doing about guns and income inequality and climate change and everything? They want to talk about everything but the real policies. And that's what the Common Bridge is about. We, we talk policy, we talk about solutions. And also our brand promise is this, that every episode, every person should find something they don't like, no matter where they are on the political spectrum, and after reading your stuff, I think this is a, a layup. Yeah, wow. Did you yeah. ever come to the right guy? Yes, we did. So, <laughs> I, can, I can make everyone unhappy, left, right, and center. We got something to piss everyone off. That's exactly. It. So we're going to have some fun with this. And you have a, your background as a writer. I want to make sure our audience hears about that. A lot of people say, hey, this is a liberal writer. Yeah. What you've yeah. been writing about with populism. And I, I really want to focus, though, as we get deeper into this today, on your latest book, The People Know. And that's not The People Know, K-N-O-W, that's The People, comma, know. And also a recent column you wrote for The Guardian that I'm gonna guess maybe cost you some friends and perhaps some fans. <laughs> the title, Liberals Want to Blame Right-Wing Misinformation for Our Problems. Now, if you would've stopped there, you would've had half the audience, but then you added the words, get real. Yeah. Well, I, I, just so you know, you know uh, journalists do not write their own headlines. And I, I did not write that headline. But, uh, you know, that captures the spirit of it. <laughs> well, about, you owe somebody, right. owe somebody a coffee or a beer because that's a good one. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we, I do want to talk about the reaction to those recent publications, a little bit how you got to your conclusions, time permitting, maybe a little speculation on what comes next. And I'm sure we're going to talk about things that will educate our audience. And, you know, maybe we'll touch a little bit on policies or maybe just help people understand how to process what we're, we're seeing today. And when we think about the books you've written, one of your early works was called The Conquest of Cool in 1997. And in Reading your homepage, you talk about the link between pseudo-radicalism of the elites with a rebel culture in a yes. union. Because it's, it's happening all over again, isn't it? Yes, indeed. It never really stopped. I mean, it, it comes and goes, you know, uh, and we're in, a, we're in another sort of a hot moment for it. So the conquest of cool was about 
something that fascinated me. This is the 1990s. I was writing a lot about rock music at the time. I was friends with a lot of musicians. And uh, one of the sort of things that we would complain about was how commercial culture was was really interested in um in in what we were doing and how they were always trying to sort of grab it and take it away from us and i decided to write about the history of that and the great moment for youth culture in america of course is the 1960s and i decided to study how the advertising industry reacted to the counterculture in the 1960s oh, which nice. I know it's it's kind of a weird question, right? And but once you start digging, it's fascinating. The advertising industry was absolutely in love with the counterculture and the idea of like rebellious youth of young people engaged in some kind of uprising. They were really, really, really into this. Now, this is not to say the advertising industry was like part of the new left or something like that, but they very quickly sort of appropriated the symbols and the sounds of the counterculture for reasons of their own. And I thought it was important to try to understand those reasons. And here we are. It's all happening all over again. <laughs> Indeed, it is. And I want to skip forward. Uh, you wrote another book. We just don't have time to go into all of those. The the one market under God in 2000 about the idiocies on uh, Wall Street. Yeah, the great the great bull market of the, exactly. of the, of the late I, I 90s. I was running a, a microcap public company at that time. And you and I could probably swap a few stories. But things really got real for you in 2004. You authored a book called What's the Matter with Kansas? Interestingly, you said that was your first foray into politics. And I love the question is, why do so many decent average people support politics that does them such obvious harm? Yeah. Um, Again, it's a great it's a great question, right? So that's the setup is that question. And I, I had been you know, thinking about that for a long time, because I'm a historically minded person. And when you study American history or the way it used to, they used to teach American history, one of the important strains in it is the rise of reform, uh, you know, of the uh, organized labor, these various protest movements, big strikes in the 19th century. And then you have the progressive movement. And then, well, then you have populism and you have the progressive movement. Then you have the New Deal and you achieve the middle class society. And so I'm, you know, coming up in the 80s and 90s and everything is going in reverse. And we're taking the middle class society apart and the very people that built it, you know, that did all these great things in our past. Uh, or their descendants anyway, are the ones who are doing it. And so I'm, I was puzzled by that in a historical sense. But then there was also a personal element to it uh, for me, because I, as I said, I grew up in Kansas, went to the public schools of that state. And in the um, late 90s, Kansas got embroiled in a huge battle over the theory of evolution. And, and you know, the, this culture war over the theory of evolution. And I was at the time living in Chicago and I just couldn't believe it. This was embarrassing to me. And, you know, uh, and I couldn't imagine that my home state had done this, had gone the, in this direction and had picked this weird culture war fight. And so I decided I would get to the bottom of it. And this was my investigation of it and how you had a um, conservative movement that was embracing such you know, these culture war battles that just seem so zany, but to look into it, it's like I wanted to interview the leaders. I wanted to see how they made their case and why they were successful. And it was a fascinating story. It is absolutely fascinating. Now, one thing I should tell people, you know, everybody sees the title and they assume that I'm 
just making fun of these people. No, I do have a lot of fun with them. That is true. No, I do have I do have some fun with with that. Uh, you know, the first part of it is me, you know, sort of uh, boggled at how strange everything is. But ultimately, I tried really hard to see eye to eye with these people, and I think I kind of succeeded. And uh, you know, these are these are the people I grew up with. I don't dislike them. Uh, I'm not you know, super judgmental towards them. I am fascinated by the historical, I think it's a you know political mistake. I'm against their politics and I think they're pushing in the wrong direction. But these are ultimately at the end of the day, a lot of these are good people. That was an important part of the book. No one remembers that part anymore. <laughs> you know, I've traveled extensively through the country, hitchhiking when I was younger in, you know, in business and for pleasure. And we're a country filled with compassionate, generous, good people. At all social strata, coming you know from all races, all whether they got here on the Mayflower or they came last week, we're just, it's a lot of good people. But you, you know we've got this political overlay that is really puzzling. But I, I think th- that book in uh, in '04 uh, probably got you off the George W. Bush Christmas card list. I'm guessing because <laughs> the conservatives punked the nation, and and then to make sure he didn't put you back on that you wrote the wrecking crew in the wrecking crew is a very washington dc book it's about uh, how these conservative administrations uh reagan and bush mainly how they um manage the machinery of government and the funny thing about that book is uh, i feel like uh donald trump and company used it as a as a shop manual you know <laughs> Like how to how to how to run the government, you know? Hey, here's a book all about that. Let's let's use this. There's a case to be made for that, and then things are going pretty well. I think the left wing of America probably felt pretty comfortable with you, and probably looking forward to getting your next book in 2016. And then you wrote something called "Listen Liberal," and I, I think some folks have uh, opined maybe it should have been "Listen Liberal" with an exclamation point. Yeah. And you pose the question, why has American liberalism been so unsuccessful at halting the deterioration of the middle class? And how did they get out of touch with what used to be the base? So I was raised in a blue collar town and my public education was paid for uh, in large part by two Ford plants. And there was a middle class standard of living. Where did did you grow up? I grew up in a town called Wayne, Michigan which okay. is in Wayne County, straight down Michigan Avenue from the city of Detroit, 15 miles from the old Tiger Stadium. Yeah. Solidly blue collar. Yes. Well, that's who we were. I just saw a statistic the other day. It was in a podcast I was listening to about professional basketball. And one of the players that they were talking about had grown up in Flint in mm-hmm. the 70s. And they said that at the time, the median income in Flint was higher than it was in San Francisco. U.S. auto companies had a dominant worldwide market share, kind of a post-war 1945. America had the only factories on the planet that were modern and not destroyed. And consumers had money in their pockets because they were working during the war, but things were rationed. They couldn't spend it. So from you know 1945, really until around 1980, when the Japanese car companies started landing, things were really, really good. But one of the things that changed after that period is that the rank and file of the union workers became increasingly more conservative and more Republican, while their union leadership remained Democratic. Yep. And that was a, a, a split. And as we talk about the current political situation, many of my friends that are in blue collar world today, my best friends in the world, guys I've known my entire life, they were in early for Trump. 
Mm. They had said, you know, to your point about why were American liberals not successful in halting the decline of the middle class? And a lot of them had reached the point, they were fed up. They were willing to try anything because they just felt like they were being left behind. That is absolutely right. So the point that I made in Listen Liberal was was really straightforward. It's that, and it, and it was easy to make, which is that the, it was at the Democratic Party, it pays lip service to unions and to, you know, and it courts union leaders from time to time. But what it really cares about is a white collar professional elite of this country. That's who they really care about. And they say this, if you do the research, which I did, and you just, you know, dig around in their magazines and their you know publications and read the speeches of Bill Clinton, that kind of thing. They're very open about this. That is who they care about. Bill Clinton was very fond of these trade agreements that deindustrialized, you know, big parts of America, including, you know, the part of America where I grew up, you know, the Midwest, mm-hmm. well, where you grew up as well. And uh, they knew that was going to happen, but they didn't care. Anyhow, the Democratic Party is no longer what we think it, it, it is not what we think it is. To, to punctuate that, Hillary Clinton, when they were trying to drive through their health care bill, said, I can't be concerned with every undercapitalized business in America. And with all of the recovery we're looking at right now, getting past the pandemic, hopefully, I'm not hearing anything about the opportunity to start a business, the, to, yeah. to be independent. It's all about you need a big check from a big place. I think that really leads me to your current book, The People Know, and again, that's The People, comma, N-O, came out in 2020. And fair warning for our listeners, the people who think that politics is binary or that the conditions of today is something we just arrived at in the moment, you probably want to slow down this podcast. You've all know my view that the two major political parties are dysfunctional. They are very good at fighting each other, terrible at actually addressing the issues of the day, and they're being fueled by entertainment instead of news. And Tom, you really dove into this. And I, I have to tell you, I really enjoyed the book, drawing the historical parallels with other periods of populism. You drew parallels from the 1890s, 1950, 2016, maybe a little bit about the 1970s. Has the mission been lost or bolstered? Well, I... Uh... Great question, Rich. uh, It's a a big question, though. So first, it it starts with the fact that so as we mentioned earlier, I'm from Kansas and Kansas has uh, only a couple of things in its history to be really proud of. And one of them is that it's the place where they invented the word populism. And also the, the political party was uh, it was a third party movement. It was a sort of a left wing farmer labor movement in the 1890s. And the word, uh, you know, its formal name was the People's Party. But the nickname populist was invented by some guys in Kansas, actually uh, riding on a train between Kansas City and Topeka one day. And uh, uh, populism became identified with the state of Kansas. And whenever somebody in those days wanted to make fun of Kansas or make fun of populism, they would make fun of people from Kansas, that kind of thing. Uh, People from Kansas were considered like crazy radicals, (laughs) you know, the opposite of what they're considered today. So that word means something very definite for me. And for a lot of people from Kansas, they still remember what that was. They know they know what that movement was. And when that word started getting used in the last couple of years as a synonym for racist demagogue, which you hear all the time now. I mean, that's the only way it's used now. Uh, That really rubbed me the wrong way. 
And I decided I would, you know, because I, it wasn't that long ago that people used it to mean something very different. They meant someone on the left who is really focused on economic issues. Barack Obama, I found in my research, used the word that way to describe himself. Uh, Jimmy Carter described himself that way. I don't think either of them was really being very accurate when they did that, but they they did use the word that way. And then all of a sudden now the, the word has changed. And so I decided to do a history of how the of what the word originally meant and how it changed. And going back, starting with the 1890s and the original populist movement, what I discovered is that there is an important populist theme in American life that comes straight out of the populist movement. If you allow that these are the guys who, who made up the word and they have a right to define it, uh, and what they meant by it is a transracial movement of working class people focused on economic issues. That's what the original populists were. They were pretty advanced for their time, even though they were not highly educated people. They were ordinary Americans. It was a very, very, very working class movement. I mean, they said this all the time. This is a movement of ordinary people. They tended to be suspicious, not of ideas, but suspicious of orthodoxy, of the people in charge of American life and in charge of American intellectual life, meaning university professors, economists, that kind of thing. Your book talks about the expert class or the learning class, and and, and that group having a, a disdain for the populist who were, might be more farmers, factory workers, yes. and the like. And this is a constant. This goes right all through the history of this movement. And also, the other thing that I was struck with is that the populists in 1890, they were condemned as, quote, threatening democracy because they were suspicious of this expert class, and that all of the elements that aligned against them, at that time, the Republican Party for McKinley. Yeah the Wall Street banks, the clergy. Yeah. They're all kind of closed ranks to keep, a, I don't know, an orthodoxy and not. Yes. It's a, it's a fascinating story. What happened was they, uh, they were indeed regarded as a threat to democracy because they were too democratic. Democracy meant the people who owned America got to determine what America was. And the populists, they were regarded as like the French Revolution. Political cartoons from the period would often depict populism wearing one of those red caps. Oh, yeah. yeah. Revolution, you know, and they were going to set up a guillotine in Wall Street or something like that. And they were regarded as the problem with populism is it was too democratic. It was anarchy. It was some this is before communism. So they couldn't call them that. So they the, the images all came from the French Revolution. Well, that was like their version of Occupy Wall Street, except with a guillotine. Well, it never it never happened. It was just an image, you know, but the populists did hate Wall Street banks. They talked about it all the time. Anyhow, so the and this came to fascinate me even more than populism itself. So the populist movement, the populist tradition, I should say, in American life, you can trace that from the 1890s through the 1930s, through the 1970s, right up to someone like Bernie Sanders, who is very much in that tradition. Yeah. But what really fascinated me were the people who hated populism. Historians generally, they understand you know, the populist tradition in American life, but this anti-populist tradition, this is something that no one has written about before. The people who came together against populism in the 1890s are very, very similar to a phenomenon of today that we'll talk about in a second. And I'm sure once I start describing what happened, your listeners will know immediately what I'm talking about. But so it's 1896. 
populism is on the rise. It's been coming now for six years. And all of a sudden, one of the two major parties, the Democratic Party, appears to have been captured by populism. They nominate this guy, William Jennings Bryan, who talks like a populist. He's not really all there with the populists on the issues, but he's with them on one big issue, which is has to do with the currency. He wanted a, a kind of currency reform uh, to get us off the gold standard. And the sort of establishment of America reacted with a kind of hysteria. They went crazy and they started denouncing this guy, William Jennings Bryan, and what they called populism in the most outrageous way, calling populists the worst names they could come up with, trying to psychoanalyze them. And so mm-hmm. it was a coming together of the, the American elite. Like you said earlier, it was the wealthy, of course, the Republican Party and the Wall Street money, the millionaires of the time, you know, the Vanderbilts and the Astors and the Carnegies, these kind of people coming together with. America's most educated elite, the presidents of universities, mm-hmm. uh, the leading economists of the time. There was a the the leading academic of the time was a man called William Graham Sumner. He was at mm-hmm. Yale University. Wrote a whole series of articles denouncing populism. Psychologists who would psychoanalyze. <laughs> this is in the very early days of psychology, so they didn't really know what they were talking about, but they tried to understand populism as a form of pathology, as, as a form of mental illness. Society preachers came together, and they, society preachers were a big deal in the 1890s, came together against denouncing populism from the pulpit. And of course, the most important element was the press. The press, which is by and large at that time, is owned by wealthy individuals who identify with the business elite, and they can't believe what they're seeing. They pick up their pencils and they just, they write the most incredible, uh, bloodthirsty attacks on populism in the press, in the, you know, in the American newspapers. And so I have a good time in the book quoting from these New York, you know, newspaper editorials denouncing populism oh. in the most extreme terms. As I'm reading the book, I found it's like, you know, if you took the date off of it, yeah. I think I saw this over the last four years. So that's the flash of recognition that goes off for me when I'm writing this book. I'm like, wait a second. You know, this is, I've seen this before. You know, this is happening right now. And it's the same, in a lot of ways, a very similar phenomenon, a coming together of the elite. But what I discovered is that this has happened repeatedly in our history. And it happened again in the 1930s when Franklin Roosevelt was president. So Roosevelt got elected in 1932 with this overwhelming landslide. And at the time, people didn't really know what to expect from Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, He was clearly a, a liberal. Uh, He clearly, you know, he had this idea called the New Deal, but we didn't really know what that entailed. And uh, uh, people were really glad to get, uh, you know, a new administration in there. Uh, You know, the country in 1932 was in the depths of despair. It was the worst year of the Depression. You know, get that guy Hoover out, get this new guy in and let's see what he can do. And by 1936, everybody knew what the New Deal was. (laughs) It was he, he took us off the gold standard, you know, which the original populists wanted him wanted us to do. He had all of these federal farms. Farm programs. He had all of these federal work programs like the WPA, hiring unemployed people, competing with private industry, jacking up wages by hiring uh, unemployed people. In fact, you had the minimum wage was a Roosevelt innovation. He had the, you know, the social security, the old age uh, retirement security. This was shocking and scary to a lot of people. And he was encouraging people to join labor unions mm-hmm. and labor organizing took off in the 1930s. You're from Michigan. You know, that's part of the story. Very proud of that that history in Michigan. And they fought hard for what we 
enjoy today. You, you look at the, the big sit down strike in Flint in 37. Mm. I mean, that was momentous. Anyhow, this is all happening under Roosevelt. And in 1936, you have the same kind of thing. The business community comes together with leading academics, high society people to denounce Roosevelt. And of course, the, again, the, the big part of the burden is, is borne by the newspaper industry, as in 1896, are still owned by very wealthy people who identify with business by and large. I'm thinking of the owner of the Chicago Tribune, a man called Colonel McCormick, who is, uh, again, I had a lot of fun quoting from his editorials, which I believe a lot of them he wrote himself and which were just, you know, he would print them on page one of the Chicago Tribune, these incredible denunciations of Roosevelt, but they uh, had, you know, a couple innovations in the thirties, they had radio. So they were able to blanket the country with radio denunciations of Roosevelt, but it's the same thing. It's this coming together of elite groups to suppress this man who is very much in the populist tradition. That time it didn't work because this country, I mean, for a lot of reasons, they come together and denounce Roosevelt and the New Deal as being crazy and saying it empowers ordinary people. It's the triumph of the unfit over society's rightful mm -hmm. rulers. Well, this sort of anti-democratic language does not work in 1936. It did work in 1896, and they were, the Republicans were able to defeat populism in, in 1896 to really crush it. But by 1936, that kind of language doesn't work anymore. You can't just tell Americans they need to get back in line and they need to, you know, sort of bow down to their betters. You know, and that's, so that, that, that stuff doesn't work anymore. But the anti-populist tradition is alive and well. And here's the funny thing. It's still going on. As I was writing this book, I'm looking around me and there's all of these articles in prestigious American magazines saying that. The problem with America is too much democracy, that people who aren't educated think they should have a say in our national affairs, and they think they know better than experts, and they need to get back in line. And they even start using the word populism in 2016 to describe both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, using it, I think, wrongly. They used it wrongly in these other two occasions also. This word is often abused. It's a way for society's elites to say what they dislike about democracy. And look, at the, at the risk of someone going, oh, this is a, a Trump support, it's, it's not. I, I've consistently said about Donald Trump, uh, not qualified to be the president of the United States, not interested in learning the job, and massive personal issues. Yeah. Maybe we'll do two episodes. We'll just keep rolling here. Um, <laughs> that, that, uh, because some of the, the, I think the Democrats made the situation worse and, and I know that uh, many of people that would be considered populists, they rejected out of hand the establishment of both parties. And now I look today and I say, you know, we've got Wall Street, elected Democrats, big tech, all aligning saying, hey, you know what, not only are we going to control things, but we're going to pick who gets to talk. Yeah, too. isn't that that's a scary aspect of this? Yeah, and I uh, read in, in the uh, the HR one bill that is a horrible bill for a lot of reasons. But they talk about well, these social media platforms are universal, and it's like, well, wait a minute, they, they can't be universal if you can kick people off. That's right. That's the famous common carrier rule. But we don't need to get into the details of that. But you're you're exactly right. If it's if it's like the phone system, I mean, they can't eavesdrop on your phone call and cut you off if they don't like what you say. <laughs> 
know, that's not how it works. So if you're going to make the system universal, then it has to be universal. It has to pretty much be open to everyone. There's all sorts of calls out there now. We're in like year four of constant state of hysteria. Yes. In some ways, I include myself in that. I was very concerned when Donald Trump got elected. I also, to some degree, you know, I warned about this. This is what Listen Liberal, my, my book, which came out in 2016, was about the Democrats' vulnerability to exactly this kind of attack. I took a, a couple victory laps when he got elected, but it was also, look, I have a family. I love this country. I don't want a man like that sitting in the uh, in the Oval Office. It was it was it was very frightening to me. But what you just said turned out to be exactly the case. This man had no business being president, was not really interested in the job, never seemed to learn and had many opportunities to step up and show what he could do and didn't didn't take them. I mean, the most obvious one being COVID. This country was crying out for leadership and this guy doesn't deliver. Well, well, he, he, he literally thought it was a reality show for himself. Yeah, they actually if, if he would have had advisors that he listened to, yeah, it basically had three things. Look, we're going to fight this thing on three fronts. Number one, we're going to get a vaccine out, which by the we way, did they do did. That. Yes. Number two, yeah. we're going to make sure that the hospitals are supplied with everything they need, PPE and equipment and beds, which they did. And then the third leg is we're going to make sure people who have been harmed by this pandemic or the reaction of the pandemic through no fault of their own, they're not going to lose their house or their credit rating, which they did. But instead of concentrating on any crisis management is where are we? What are we doing? Yep. How are we measuring it? How are we moving through? But he just displayed that he thought it was about him. Yeah. You think of we were talking about Roosevelt a second ago. You think about Roosevelt during World War II being reassuring going on the radio, you know, talking us through this disaster, you know, Pearl Harbor, talking us through the depression, letting us know what he was doing, that it was going to be okay. And Trump, it was beyond him. And you're right that they did a lot of the right thing. They handled the economic side of it fairly well. I was a little surprised by that. But no, he was just, his leadership was just so astonishingly poor. I think vacuums the word you're looking for. Just... It just wasn't there. And I've got this view Ed, that the nomination of Donald Trump was the end of the establishment of the Republican Party. The election of Donald Trump should have been the end of the establishment of the Democratic yeah. Party. Did the establishment of the Democratic Party fight off Bernie Sanders, who I think is as close to a populist as you could get, to survive? Or is there another wave coming? And did the anti-populist forces of history, when you studied them, did they play the race and class divisions the way we're seeing those splits today? Oh, wow. So many good questions there, Rich. The last one first, the race and class divisions. Oh, my God, yes. But not the way that it's being done today. I mean, very much the opposite. So they played on those divisions in a sort of racist way. So one of the very interesting things about populism, and historians are fascinated by this, is that it was strong in three regions of America, the far west, which didn't have a lot of people in it, the Great Plains area, you know, Kansas, Dakotas, Nebraska, Texas, and then in the south. These are all areas with a lot of farmers. And populism was very strong in the South. The South at the time was, you know, very poor. Everyone was a farmer, but there was a very strong ruling elite who were identified at the time. This is a white ruling elite planter class who were identified with the Democratic Party at the time. They called themselves Bourbon Democrats. And populism went into the South and... Um, 
actually grew up in the South and said, this is our appeal to voters of the South. This is in the 1890s now. And in a lot of Southern states, blacks could still vote. They hadn't been disenfranchised yet. None of that stuff had happened yet. I mean, it had happened a little bit in some of the states, but not in all of them. And so populism went into these Southern states and said, Southern politics at the time was dominated by racist appeals to white people. It was these, this idea they called white solidarity, the idea that the only thing that mattered was the color of your skin. And so white people had to stick together as a race, show solidarity as a race. Poor white farmers voting for the party that was controlled by the people who owned the South. That's white solidarity. Populism went into the South and said, no, your interests as a farmer are more important than your interests as a white person. And on that basis, we're going to reach out to black voters whose interests are the same as white farmers and reach out to them and try to build a coalition based on class interests rather than on racial interests. And this was absolutely shocking. <laughs> As you might imagine, this was, um, you know, this challenged the Southern system at its very heart. And it, things like this had happened before in the South. And there was a kind of a constant threat beneath the surface that poor whites and poor blacks might get together and realize their common interests. Yeah, our ancestral history. Oh, you're a person of this color or you're a person of this heritage. You, you, you have to think this way. We're going to put you in this box with everyone else and don't talk to these other guys. And I look at that and go, okay, well, who wants us to not talk to folks yeah. like that? We all agree that our government today is not doing a very good job. And frankly, everybody's more than concerned about the surrendering of privacy yeah. and very concerned about the amount of power that the you know, big tech monopolies wield. Yeah. So let me finish this story, and then I'll come to that. Basically, the Southern elite came down on populism like a ton of bricks with all kinds of racist appeals. They basically defeated them everywhere except in North Carolina. That was the only Southern state where the populists won. Mm -hmm. And they made an alliance with the Republican Party, which was a small party. That was a party that black voters tended to be loyal to. And they came together and they, they won. And they elected a governor, sent people to Congress, U.S. senator, et cetera, et cetera, took over the state legislature, all that stuff. And they did a lot of the things that populists do. They allowed local home rule in cities around North Carolina, which meant that suddenly in areas where blacks were in the majority, they were electing city governments and stuff like that. And uh, this was just intolerable. And the local elite came at them in the year 1898 with something they called and this is famous. You know, this is all over the sort of, well, actually it's famous, but it's something people don't like to talk about because it's very uncomfortable what happened next. It was called the white supremacy campaign. They actually called it that the white, yeah, I know. The, the white supremacy campaign. And they brought in all of these racist speakers from all around the South. They built a militia, uh, a racist militia. They were called the red shirts. Yeah. Oh, went no. around, I know it's like the brown shirts, right? But they were called the red shirts. They went around you know, intimidating voters, shooting voters, uh, frightening people, and then a, a campaign of hysteria, in this case, racist hysteria uh, uh, directed against populism and against the Republicans. And they did it. They won. This is in 1898. And they take control of the state legislature and they do two things immediately. The first one is they disenfranchise black voters and a lot of poor whites. People have studied, you know, where did, this is the beginning of Jim Crow. And so people ask, you know, where did Jim Crow come from? You know, it didn't just develop, 
you know, it wasn't hasn't been around forever. It was developed deliberately to make sure that populism never happened again. Separate the races and make sure they are not friends. Make sure that they don't mm. get back together and try this again. And this is a, a I mean, I'm I'm generalizing and in some southern states. It happened before populism in some states after populism. But in a bunch of them, they did this deliberately to stop populism. And they took the vote away from black voters all over the South. And it's, it's a terrible story. And in North Carolina, it actually ended in the in a really bloody manner, where in one of the cities there in Wilmington, North Carolina, the uh, local Democrats armed themselves and marched into the city and they had a Republican mayor and they chased him out of office. They had a populist police chief. They chased him out of town. They went through the black part of town shooting and burning. They burnt down. There was a black newspaper in the town. They burnt it, killed a bunch of people, and they took over the government of this town. They, had, they This town had an, it's a city actually, mm. had an elected government and they overthrew it. And it's apparently the only time there's been a successful military coup in America since the Civil War. It's the craziest story. I didn't even know this story until I started writing I, I, the book. I didn't know it until I read your book. Uh, and, and, I never and heard it's, of it. It's, again, it's, it's an uncomfortable story, and people don't, don't like to talk about it. But the, you can find the research on it. It's out there if you dig. Uh, and it's a, an incredible tale. Anyhow, that's what happened to populism. It's ironic that the word that these guys invented to describe themselves, populist, that this word later became they flipped the meaning of it and made it a synonym for racism. Just two other quick things that when I, I hear you going through that and I can't help but going back to the 2016 election and, and it's aftermath. And, and we agree that we ended up uh, with a bad president. The thing that struck me is that following the 2016 election, there was like a doubling down. This is the, the party that said, uh, you know, a certain part of your voters are deplorable. Yeah. They're irredeemable. They're not worth appealing to. And following the election, instead of saying, hey, we missed something, we need to go to Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania and find it. We, we, we missed something. There was like almost like a doubling down of, well, wait a minute. They really proved how dumb yeah. they are and how misinformed and how emotional because it wasn't a problem with we, the Democrats. It was a problem with you, the voters, aren't good enough or smart enough to vote and for us. People said that. They said exactly what you just described, that you are not exaggerating. There's a, a whole chapter of the people know it's the last chapter of the book is filled with quotations from leading pundits and thinkers saying exactly that, uh, that the problem is not that the Democrats failed the people. It's that the people failed the Democrats. OK, this is a good stopping point for part one of Rich's interview with Tom Franks. We'll drop episode two at this time next week. In the meantime, if you'd like to watch this episode, you can go to YouTube and watch Richard Helpy's Common Bridge TV, and you can see this in its entirety. Also, make sure you subscribe when you get there. And if you go to richardhelpy.com, go ahead and subscribe to that too, where we're putting together some really interesting things for our subscribers that we think you'll really enjoy. And that's going to be individual interviews where you can ask questions and such. And uh, we'll describe that more online. So subscribe to the website, go on YouTube, be a subscriber to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge. And we'll see you next week. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast, recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. 
For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.